Father, I ask now that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight. You alone are our strength and our redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. Good morning. It's good to be with you this morning on this uh, rainy Sunday during the season of Epiphany. Uh, during the Epiphany season, we usually focus on the Magi who come from the East. Uh, we three kings, you know the song, and they bring their gifts to the child Jesus, this beautiful reminder of God's plan uh, for all peoples. And we've looked at that over the last few weeks and how we can share the light of Christ in our homes, our neighborhoods, our workplaces, our communities. And I want to do something kind of shift us this morning. Um, our friends in the Eastern Orthodox Church actually have a different focus for the Epiphany season. And I want to shift us and broaden uh, to that focus this morning. You see, in the Eastern Church, they focus this entire season, and it fits so nicely with the new year, on renewing our commitment to the Lord. Um, and they actually anchor that to the story of the baptism of Jesus rather than um, the Magi who come. And uh, they do this in a pretty remarkable way. Um, to this day, if you go to Russia or Ukraine, one of these Eastern European nations where the Orthodox Church is strong, um, they will go out during the Epiphany season and they'll do something to renew their baptism together. Um, and it looks a little crazy. So what they do is they go out and they find like a frozen lake or a frozen river and they will carve a cross out of the ice and open that up. So you just have freezing cold water. And then uh, the clergy, the priest will take a cross and throw it into the hole, into the water, and everyone will jump in after into the freezing cold water. Um, and it's this uh, wonderful way to, with all of your body, be renewed and recommit and cleanse yourself uh, before the Lord. Um, look this up in YouTube. There are some incredible images, even of priests up on a bridge, chunking into a river, and everyone like goes and jumps in. Um, so guess what we're going to do today? <laughs> no, just kidding. There's no polar bear plunge in the middle of Coney. Um, but I do want to kind of grab that idea, um, grab that kind of uh, full-bodied commitment to the Lord, and look at that over the next few weeks. Um, and we're going to actually be looking at the Sermon on the Mount, one of uh, the major teaching sections from Jesus. Um, and it gives us a picture of what it means to follow him. Um, what discipleship looks like, what life in the kingdom of God uh, looks like. And we're going to plunge into this sermon, um, and it might sting like icy water. Um, there are parts where this challenges us and it comforts us, but it gives us a picture of what God is calling us to. So we're going to look at the first part this morning in Matthew uh, chapter 5, beginning with the call to uh, discipleship. Now, I don't know if you've read Matthew's gospel recently, but this gospel in particular is filled with calls to discipleship, uh, to follow Jesus. Um, the calling of the first disciples in Matthew 4, right by the Sea of Galilee, Jesus says, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Later in Matthew, Matthew 16, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, 
take up his cross and follow me. Uh, The gospel ends with the Great Commission. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. This gospel is focused on discipleship, on following Jesus, on learning from Jesus about how to live life. Uh, Matthew 11, Jesus says, take my yoke upon you. Um, And I actually really appreciate the way uh, the message paraphrases this. I don't often go to the message Um, But sometimes Eugene Peterson's paraphrase can just kind of cut through the familiarity um, and help us hear a passage anew. And so listen to how he renders Matthew 11, the passage about the yoke. He says, Jesus resumed talking to the people. Are you tired, worn out, burned out on religion? Come to me. Get away with me and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me, and you'll learn to live free and lightly. Over and over again, there's this call to come and to learn. Jesus invites us to be his disciples, his apprentices, And see what it means to be and live and work as those made in the image of the triune God. Um, We clearly come under him. That we come and submit to his lordship, his person, his work, his wisdom, his ways. Uh, This is a relational, ongoing process. It's available to everyone. And that's the first place where it really stands out for how unique this is. You see, in the first century, there were lots of rabbis, teachers, And they would call people to come be their disciples, to be their apprentices, to come learn from them, to take on the rabbi's yoke. Um, But here's the thing. (laughs) Um, Most of the best rabbis in the first century, you know what they looked for? The best and the brightest. The folks who they thought would excel, the one who, according to the ways of this world, uh, were wise and were strong. And instead, Jesus comes to the leftovers and the left out. And says, come follow me. Come learn from me. Uh, He takes everyone under his wing and calls us and will teach us. Um, And it's fascinating because he invites us to be part of his mission. Part of um, his story. I I know so many people, they wrestle and they struggle with what is God's will for my life? What is the story of my life? Where is meaning? Where is purpose? What is God calling me to? And what God calls us to is to submit our lives and our story, our meaning, our purpose, to actually, uh, like a yoke, hitch that to him. To be part of his story, to be part of his mission, part of what he is doing in the world. And then we'll see things done with eternal significance and meaning and purpose because they're done in and through him. And this sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, is probably the most concentrated teaching in the New Testament of what this kind of life and calling looks like, what the kingdom of God looks like. So I want to dig into this really over the next few weeks um, together. So Matthew 5, verses 1 through 2 starts, Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples uh, came to him. Let me talk about that for just a moment. Um, It says, seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. 
Now, the traditional location for this, the Sermon on the Mount, um, is in the fishing villages around the Sea of Galilee, right next to Capernaum. And you might be really surprised to know um, it's not a mountain. Like, it's barely a hill. Like, it's, it's a few steps up from uh, the water. And you might go, well, what in the world? Does Matthew just not know this part of Israel? Does he not know the difference in a hill and a mountain? What's he doing? Well, I think there's actually something very uh, important happening here. Because the idea of Jesus going up on a mountain is not really geographic. It's theological. It, it reminds us of when Moses went up on Mount Sinai. And he met with the Lord. And he received God's law and God's wisdom for his people and he came back down. Matthew wants us to see Jesus as the new Moses, the one giving us God's way, God's wisdom. Um, actually, Matthew, the book, is organized around five big teachings, like the five books of the Torah and the Old Testament. This is all um, intentional, what Matthew is doing here. Um, here, Jesus ascends the hill as God in the flesh to deliver the true interpretation of God's way and his will and his wisdom, to lay it out for his people, to summon them to kingdom and covenant obedience. So we're told that as he ascends the mountain, uh, Jesus sits down and his disciples came to him. Um, I will tell you, I love this part because what uh, you may not know is that in the first century, sitting down is the position of a teacher. Now, who in here has taken a public speaking course? Anyone here taking public speaking? All right. You know that thing they teach you early on? Like, you can only talk as long as they can sit. You've heard that, right? Is this just me? I was the only one that was taught that. Um, I don't know. I've often wondered, man, if they let me sit, how long could I talk? <laughs> I think a good 80-minute sermon. What do you think? I don't know. Um, no, he sits down because that's the, the posture of authority. He's seated, he's rooted, and he's going to deliver um, God's word to his people. Like I said, this is an extensive section of teaching. Um, I always think kind of the one-two punch of Jesus' teaching is you've got Matthew 5, 6, and 7, the Sermon on the Mount. And you've got the Upper Room Discourse, John about 13 through 17. Um, everywhere else we have stories, we have parables, we have uh, pithy sayings. Here we've got whole chapters stitched together of Jesus' extensive teaching um, about life in the kingdom and his work and what he's doing. And so you would think that this would be the main curriculum for every church and every Christian, right? That we would spend all of our time. If, Jesus, if this is the sermon of Jesus, why? Well, we should attend to it all the time. If we're thinking about how we should live life, our ethics, if we're thinking about what we should obey, wouldn't you think that this would have first place and first priority? But honestly, the Sermon on the Mount, if you look at uh, church history, it is almost a study in how do we sidestep <laughs> and avoid some of the clear teaching in these chapters. Uh, one scholar says the history of the impact of the Sermon on the Mount can largely be described in terms of an attempt to domesticate everything in it that is shocking, demanding, uncompromising, and render it harmless. The contrast you see between Jesus' uh, vision of life in the kingdom and our own life just bothers us. 
we see how much we fall short. We read through this great sermon and go, oh my goodness, he's just hitting me with one thing after another. I don't even know where to start. Is there a way to sidestep this? Like a bullfighter, like the bull's coming for you, can you just kind of toro and let it keep running? So often the church has done that, but I want to spend a couple weeks just taking this seriously. Seeing what the Lord might have for us as we dig into um, this signature sermon from our Savior. And the first part talks about uh, the hope and blessing of discipleship. Um, this list that Deacon Text read for us, the Beatitudes, um, the term blessed occurs nine times. Um, and I don't know about you, when I hear the Beatitudes, they're so familiar. And there's kind of a sing-song rhythm to them. Blessed are, blessed are, blessed are. We can almost tune it out, can't we? We can be so used to it, so familiar with it. But what's happening in these Beatitudes? Um, I would say that as you read through this list, you're probably going to find two things happening. One, hopefully you're going to be comforted. And secondly, I think you're going to be challenged. Because when we read through this list, you're probably going to go, oh, that's me. I see myself in that description, and oh, thanks be to God. There's blessing even for that, even in the midst of that. I mean, if you read through this, none of this is what you would sign up for, is it? No, we find ourselves poor in spirit. We find ourselves mourning. We find ourselves meek. We find ourselves persecuted. And Jesus comforts us by saying, in the midst of that, know that God's blessing is upon you and will be with you eternally. There's hope in the midst of discipleship. But then some of these we read and we see just this picture of the ethics of the kingdom. Like, blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And it's a challenge. How are we being called to step into the role of being a peacemaker? What does it mean to hunger and thirst for righteousness? We have all of these in the Beatitudes and what is often called uh, the gospel of the kingdom that we have here. Um, and let me just for a moment pause. Um, when I say the word gospel of the kingdom, I don't know what goes through your mind. Because in the church, the word gospel is used in a number of different ways. For example, Deacon Text read to us from the Gospel of Matthew. We have four accounts in the New Testament. They're called Gospels. The good news of the life and story of Jesus, right? Um, there's a sense in which we can talk about the Gospel of the Kingdom, the announcement that the Kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe that Gospel, the good news. Uh, there's a generic sense in the sense of the good news is God loves you and made you as it work in this world. And then there's the very specific capital G Gospel, the good news of what God has done in and through Christ for us and for our salvation. Um, all of those are good news. All of those are gospel. All are beautiful. And sadly, sometimes in the church, those get pitted against one another. Like somehow Jesus' saving workforce is different than his vision for life in the kingdom of God. But these all are perfectly joined um, in the Lord. Um, by the way, when I think of the capital G gospel, what has God done for us in Christ? Um, here's the best definition I've found. Uh, it's from Bishop N.T. Wright. I know that surprises you <laughs> if you've come here a few times. He says, the gospel is the royal announcement of the crucified and risen Jesus, 
who died for our sins and rose again according to the scriptures, has been enthroned as the true Lord of the world. That's the announcement. He goes on to say, when this gospel, capital G, is preached, God calls people to salvation out of sheer grace, leading them to repentance and faith in Jesus Christ as the risen Lord. And that risen Lord says, come and follow me. And this is what life in the kingdom of God looks like. This all joins together in uh, King Jesus. Now, I will say, if you read through this first part, these Beatitudes, um, these are fairly shocking. And normally in the first century, anyone who's having any of these things happen to them, if they're poor or persecuted or reviled, they would have been viewed as, oh, you're on the wrong side of things. Um, you're not attending to righteousness. You're not attending to God's way. Look how he's punishing you. And, and Jesus flips these all on their head. Um, he says, no, the person who is blessed has a heart for God, and they're promised God's blessing and favor regardless of their circumstances or status or e even their countercultural um, condition. And I think we can actually, if you take the Beatitudes, you could almost group, group them into three distinct groups. Uh, that's helpful for me so that I don't just kind of sing song, go through them. Um, the first is about humility. Think about it. The one who is poor in spirit, the one who is mourning, the one who is meek, that's all about humility, like we heard about in Micah, to walk humbly before our Lord. Um, the second cluster is about justice. Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, those who are merciful, those who are pure in heart. And then the third is on those who create peace, uh, the peacemakers. And then he talks about the ones who are persecuted and insulted, and they don't return insult. They don't return persecution. They don't return violence. They follow the way of the kingdom that Jesus will actually show to us. Humility, justice, and peace. And I can imagine the the disciples, as they hear this for the first time, going, what in the world is God up to? And am I part of it? What's he doing in the world? You see, these are a radical manifesto of a kingdom way of life. Jesus is showing who God is working in and blessing. It's a call to humility and justice and peace. Um, and I think the best way to maybe apply this or, or to get our head around it um, is to actually work through it. Um, I would almost want to just give you homework. It's like at some point this week, um, get alone and get quiet and spend time reading through this list a few times. See if there's one that stands out to you and you go, oh my goodness, in the midst of this, which I would never desire for myself, God sees me and blesses me. Or as you read through to go, oh man, I really don't want to grow in that area. But if discipleship is following Jesus step by step, I think that's the next step that he is calling me into. I think for most of us, we're going to read through this and we're going to find an area of comfort. And we're going to find an area of challenge. Let me give an example. Um, I know for me, if I think back over really the last year, um, especially 2022, um, the one that st sticks out to me that comforts me is verse 4. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Uh, some of y'all know I went away on a retreat last summer to Colorado. 
Um, and it was actually a chance to be uh, with the spiritual director and our bishop and some colleagues and found some incredible healing uh, mourning the death of my father, which was about five years ago. Um, impactful moment. Again, nothing kind of solved all at once, but a clear work of the Lord to bring healing um, that I had been longing for and waiting for and probably holding off um, at the same time. Again, no one desires mourning, do you? No one desires loss. And Jesus said, God sees you in that and blesses you in that and will meet you even in that. Um, again, I think for some of us, we, we read this and we think about it. We think about our communities and our workplaces, our homes, our neighborhoods. Um, I don't know about you. Right now, people just, uh, they're not getting along very well. You know this, right? I'm not telling you anything you don't know. Um, it, it's a season of, I think, cynicism and polarization and dismissiveness. Um, I think there was a, a point maybe like six months into 2020, a lot of folks were like, all right, we're going to have hard conversations. We're going to do this. We're going to talk about these things. Man, everyone I hear now, they're just tired. They're like, can I take a vacation? Um, like, it's January. Is the summer here yet? <laughs> um, and I think, man, we, we have this call that, hey, maybe you're called to think about what it means to be a peacemaker in the year ahead. Um, that hard and holy work of peacemaking. Uh, Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers. They shall be called uh, sons of God. Um, Scott McKnight, who's an Anglican uh, clergyman, a New Testament scholar, he's written a whole book on the Sermon on the Mount. Here's how he defines uh, being a peacemaker. He says, peacemaking isn't being nice or being tolerant, but an active entry into the middle of warring parties for the purpose of creating reconciliation and peace. The peacemaker seeks to reconcile not by pretending there are no differences or suppressing differences, but by creating love of the other that transcends differences or that permits uh, people to join hands in spite of differences. Um, I think about Jesus' call, uh, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, uh, for holiness. Um, I feel like that's something probably just I don't know, when's the last time you had a, heard a sermon on holiness? That God calls us to pursue holiness uh, personally, as a church, as a culture, that holiness, that God has a good and fruitful way to live that he calls us to. Um, and when I read that, maybe there's something you go, man, this is an area that God wants to work in my life to bring things back into alignment with his righteousness, his holiness. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Um, again, I would say if you, uh, a lot of times we have a sermon, and then we come to the table, and then we kind of finish everything off. It's a nice, there's closure at the end of the service. Um, you're going to get the most benefit from this morning if you actually do take uh, this home with you. You spend some time with these introductory words from Jesus, saying, Lord, where do you see me? Where do I feel your comfort where do I feel your challenge? Read through these. Um, talk about them with those who know you well. Um, talk about them with your community. Um, Jesus in this section sets up the whole rest of the sermon um, that we'll be looking at. Um, and don't worry. If you think he messes with you with the Beatitudes, just wait until the rest of the sermon. Um, he gets all in all of our business. Um, and we could either be afraid of that or we could push back on that 
Um, or we can acknowledge we all have things that Jesus wants to do business with us about and embrace the opportunity of a new year and this season of recommitment uh, to learn from him and listen to him again. Um, I actually want to do something interesting as we get kind of near to closing this morning. Um, I want to talk about the foundation of discipleship, but I want to do it um, by looking at the conclusion of Jesus' sermon. Again, this is a whole sermon, three chapters. And listen to how he closes it in Matthew 7, 24. Um, again, any preacher just wishes we were like 1% of this good. Because he's laid out all of these teachings. Here's what life in the kingdom of God looks like. He's gotten in everybody's business when you read this sermon. And then he says this. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell. And great was the fall of it. End of red words. <laughs> we'll talk about that for just a moment as we close. Um, Jesus is saying that there's a foundation to build your life on. And it's his teaching and his ways and his love for us. Um, what he brings forth in this sermon is not a list of mindless rules and regulations. It's not just good suggestions or guidelines for life. It's the kind of foundation that you can build your life on that undergirds and strengthens every area of our lives with a rock-solid foundation. Um, and it's interesting because what, what Jesus is really saying here is at some point, the storm's going to come. And when the storm comes, it's too late to reset the foundation. Some of you know this. You've been going through storms in the last year. Or you see one up ahead. Jesus says, no, you need to actually be rooted in me. The foundation of your life needs to be me. It needs to be something that no matter what comes, you won't be shaken or fall because you have built your house on the rock, not on the sand. Jesus says what it means to be built on that foundation is that you are hearing and doing what Jesus says. It's not just hearing, it's putting into practice this kingdom way of life, following Jesus, being his apprentice, responding to how he is leading you. Um, and I want to just highlight one more thing that's interesting to me. Um, I mentioned that Jesus is on this hill next to the Sea of Galilee, right? It's not really a mountain. It's kind of a hill. Um, well, he's, all he's doing is just using where he is to finish this sermon. Because if you go to the shore of the Sea of Galilee, it does not look like Dustin, Florida. Um, what you have are just kind of gray, rocky sand. Um, and it, it looks pretty firm. Like, you, you know, you don't see kids building sandcastles on this sand. Um, and it looks like you could build anything there, that it would hold you. It, it looks sturdy. Um, and in fact, in Jesus' day, um, there were two ways to build a home around the Sea of Galilee. The first is you would look at this kind of gray, rocky sand, the shore, and go, I, I could just build on that. And, and you build your home on it. And as long as no storms come, you're fine. As long as the tide doesn't come in, 
your house isn't washed away because like it's kind of firm. It's that kind of rocky gray soil, sand. Um, but if you really wanted to do it properly, you would have to do something that took a lot of work. And you would have to dig down about 10 to 12 feet until you could find the bedrock. And you had to connect your foundation to that bedrock. And if you built your home in that way, then if the tides came or the storm came or it was flooded, guess what? Your house was fine. Because you had taken the time to connect it to something firm and solid. You had connected it to the bedrock. And I, I don't know if this is true. I, I like to use my imagination. Do you like to use your imagination when you read the Bible? I can just only imagine that if that's true, that there's probably some house over there <laughs> in ruins because someone had actually built it on the sand, not drilled down, and it got washed away. And over here, <laughs> um, there's a house standing firm. Jesus is using all of his surround. A little bit later, he's going to talk about a light set upon a hill. There are hills where you would have homes. With he's just looking around. He's like, check this out. This isn't rocket science, y'all. You can see how this would work. And so what does that mean for us? Uh, Scott McKnight says, the fundamental aim of this sermon, Sermon on the Mount, is to present Jesus and his kingdom vision for his kingdom people. And the only acceptable response is to embrace him, to accept the challenge. And that means to do what he says. You know, when Jesus finished teaching, when the red letters end right here, here's what Matthew says. Everyone's astonished at his teaching. It was brilliant. It bordered on blasphemous because he didn't just point folks out there to God. He pointed people towards himself. They're used to good teaching. This is different. Jesus is speaking as one with inherent authority. He's calling them to himself, to follow him as king and Lord. He's not just a good teacher, a religious leader, another prophet. This is God incarnate, fulfilling the law, showing forth God's wisdom, teaching about life in the kingdom of God. And it leaves us with the question, will we <laughs> bow our knees? to this authoritative Lord. Wonder about his ways, follow his ways, or stubbornly try to do things on our own. It's the question of if you're going to build your life on the firm rock that is Jesus, the Christ, the Son of the living God, or build it on the temporary sands of this world. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.